how do the country's most successful independent restaurant companies handle labor and other cost pressures? Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, executive editor of Restaurant Business Magazine, and this week's edition of A Deeper Dive is all about independence, and specifically large ones, as measured by our top 100 list of the largest independent restaurants by revenue. This week, RB executive editor Sarah Rushworth speaks with R.J. Melman, the president of Lettuce Entertain You Enterprises in one of the largest and most successful independent restaurant operations in the country. R.J. is the son of founder and chairman Richard Melman and has created more than 13 concepts himself. He has talked with Sarah about a number of issues, including how Lettuce deals with labor costs, as well as how the company creates so many independent concepts. And later, Sarah and I sit down and talk about our top 100 ranking and how independent restaurants are winning the battle for today's consumer. Now here's Sarah and R.J. So, RJ, thank you so much for agreeing to participate in our podcast for restaurant business, A Deeper Dive. Each year, uh, as part of our Top 100 Independence Package, we write a big feature on what's going on and trending with big independent restaurants. And the theme from this year seemed to be kind of twofold. So there's increases in costs and challenges, and then there's also the changing diner and their preferences. So I just want to kick it off by asking you, what are some of the biggest challenges for operating in today's climate? Well, as you said, it's sort of um, everyone kind of has the same challenges. We're, we're living in a world where, at least in the United States, unemployment is at you know historic lows. Um, there are certainly more opportunities to find quick and pretty well-paying jobs, if you think about Uber and other mm-hmm. jobs that might have driven people to the service industry. Um, you know, there's new careers and pathways opening up for a lot of people that could end up in there that want a, a pretty flexible schedule, or uh, uh, which is one of the, I think the, the the things that drive people to the service industry. So, you know, you have a situation where there are really environmental factors that are I think contributing to that. I don't think it's going to be always that way. Um, it, it's hard to imagine a world where unemployment is you know at three percent or something like that across the United States for for forever, and like everything else, it's cyclical. But at the same time, we are thinking about lots of ways to improve our recruiting. So, um, and I imagine that's what a lot of people in the industry are doing. Um, cost pressure happens. I mean, people. I feel like that's something that people talk about every year. There are, you know, real changes in minimum wage laws that are pretty significant. That I think they're affecting the industry. Um, transportation. You know, issues, uh, if you even think about avocados this week, shot up in price, right, because there's a strike in Mexico. But those things come and go, and, and that happens from, you know, there's, like I said, environmental factors that affect those things. There's acts of God that, you know, uh, frost in Florida, whatever. I mean, that, that, that happens all the time. It seems like um, costs and regulation are real, but, it, you know, I'm not convinced that it's any more or less worse than than at any other time in their history or that it's changed dramatically. Definitely. So let's go back to what you first said. You know, we know it's a really tight labor market. You guys operate a lot of restaurants at Lettuce, and I'm guessing that means you have a lot of staff. So what are some of those strategies that you guys are using right now? You know, we've um, started from our HR department really focusing on um, hourly recruiting. It's not necessarily a position we had in the past, but we've put a big emphasis uh, on the store level and uh, at both at the corporate level and the store level on improving our hourly re- um, recruiting. We then also think about ways to retain staff better and uh, 
we are always looking at our benefits packages and things that we can do to improve them. And, I mean, clearly one of the best things that we can do to attract new people is to open new stuff. So it really helps, I think, that we're growing. We're in a unique position where we're going to open 14 or 15 restaurants probably in the next calendar year. And why it is challenging to, you know, find people it also is exciting because you're telling a story about what's going on new within the company. And I think that makes it appealing for a lot of people to want to work here. So we definitely have an advantage when you're doing new concepts and new ideas. And you can say, we just, you know, we just did a wine bar and that's exciting. Or we just did, you know, a rooftop Mediterranean restaurant. And that, I think it gets exciting. Uh, And then we have a really robust internship program that we have run for almost the last 20 years that we run in the summertime, but we're also uh, now in the process of doing a winter time or, you know, uh, a fall and winter internship as well that we'll probably roll out um, hopefully in January or so. Do any of those interns then become full-time staff? Yeah, we've had a, a ton of uh, general managers and managers come out of that those ranks. Uh, awesome. I'd say we probably have seven to ten partners within the company that have come through the internship program right now. Wow. And probably probably fifteen to twenty general managers on top of that. So, mm-hmm. and are there? We, I know you mentioned the benefit. Oh, go ahead. Recruiting. It does lead to a lot of recruiting for us. So that that you know that internship program is definitely geared towards the managerial side, not the hourly uh, employee side. But but we have you have to attack those things uh, on every level. Absolutely. And you mentioned you know the benefits. Have you noticed that any? specific benefit is getting people more excited than others just as you're out there recruiting? You know, lettuce is unique. So we've, for, for for as long as I've been around, and even longer than that, so almost, you know, well over 20 years, if not longer, um, Lettuce Entertainment has always had health insurance for uh, its employees. Uh, even as far back, even before Obamacare made it a mandate, uh, if you worked uh, 12 hours or more with us, you were able, eligible for some sort of insurance program. Actually, uh, the Affordable Health Care Act sort of changed a little bit of how the the programs run with us. But so health care has always been, I, I think, um, a really attractive benefit for here. But this last year we did improvements to our vacation pay, our um, some of our leaves. We've done improvements to our 401K. So we haven't just attacked it on uh, any level, holiday pay. Um, we look at all the benefits, you know, on a yearly basis and see how we can improve them and make them more satisfying. We... Uh, have conducted surveys with their employees with things make them uh, certainly the most happy. And we are really interested in improving that for them every year. That's great. Uh, Switching gears a little bit. So as part of this package, we also hear a lot about issues with increased competition for, you know, those prime real estate spots and increased rents. How do you guys go about site selection in today's climate? We are really fortunate. You know, I mean, we, I guess one of the benefits of being a privately held company is that we don't have to do anything. I said we have 14 or 15 projects. I, I, and I kind of put on a piece of paper the other day what we have going on. But um, we have the beauty of being patient. We don't have to do anything if we don't want to do a restaurant or any restaurants or five, you know. We don't have any mandates that say we have to do a certain amount of stores a year. So that is certainly a benefit. We also have a great track record, I think, of being a great tenant. So that um, certainly probably opens up more opportunities for us. The funny thing about, I'm not sure that it's harder to find locations today. I actually think it's in some ways easier. One of, uh, the way I see it is that one of the declines in the retail space 
uh, and as as retailers mm-hmm. shift online to Amazon, even you know as Macy's needs less people in the stores, their sales might be the same, but a lot of that portion goes online. Is that you start to see, to me, a lot more retail spots open, and it seems like landlords are filling it with what seems to be working, which is dining destinations, even if it's quick service, full service, fine dining. You know that seems to be the the mo of a lot of landlords. So. It actually feels like there's more locations opening up. Um, I think you're seeing rents even. We don't have any restaurants in New York, but anecdotally I've heard that there's much more affordable deals in New York than there have been in the past, that people are actually being more aggressive uh, in other cities. And so we, in some ways, are getting offered some of the best deals we've we've ever had, and a lot of them come from places that might have had traditional retail paying $100 and $200 a square foot, which is now being switched over to $40, $50 a square foot in Chicago. So. Interesting. And I guess it makes sense. The landlord has to fill it. Better to get people there and not sit empty. Yeah. You know, a landlord's job is to keep keep rent coming in and, you know, it's, it's the, the cash flow of, the, of their business. And that's – they want to keep that going with great tenants. And um, it seems like right now as, as more people shift to dining out, like I said, of any level, uh, it feels like that that's getting filled in by by that. So I don't think it's any – harder or easier to find spots, you know, than it used to be for us. Sure. And if I'm not mistaken, you guys really do make the most out of a lot of your sites, whether it's, you know, reconcepting an existing concept or space, RIP Real Club, or having, you know, multiple concepts operate out of the same space, like with Oyster Bar having the all-you-can-eat crab cellar downstairs and delivery only seasides in the back. Is there any strategy around that? I wish I could tell you that we sit around and it's probably more of a strategy of how we think than it is a strategy of what we could do. You know, we view every, every square foot of a place as, you know, either utilized or un, unutilized. And uh, you think back, I, I think a lot of this started in 2008. We had a restaurant called True, which is a two mm-hmm. star restaurant and um, it's no longer open, but um, it's 2008. The economy crashes and, Eating a $250 check average meal became, you know, not exactly in vogue. And we had a huge kitchen that was for sure at its peak as necessary as it got. And we had a, a whole pastry kitchen that we decided over time that you really didn't need. You know, it's a place that probably was doing 120 covers on a busy night going down to 60 or 70 uh, as it became, you know, sort of uncool to eat at places like that. And, um, you see that we have this pastry kitchen. It's underutilized. We can rearrange the kitchen pretty easily. And we create a value brand in Emberger out of that 800, 900 square feet. Um, and, the I mean, Emberger ends up being more successful than True was at the time. Wow. Uh, so that gives us a lot of confidence internally to to say that we want to convert things. We've had a lot of success of having great locations. Um, we did a restaurant in the 90s with, uh, a sort of pseudo-celebrity at the time. No, just kidding. Uh, a woman <laughs> named Oprah Winfrey. We had a restaurant called The Eccentric. Never heard of her. But, but yeah, never. She's she's just she's been on TV a little bit. You might have seen her. <laughs> um, but for whatever reason, uh, the restaurant didn't work. It had a really talented culinary team. It had Oprah behind it. Now it was the '90s. It wasn't you know uh, you know the Oprah of selling out the United Center for a final show. Oprah, but nonetheless, very very popular person at the time. And whatever reason, it you know, it didn't come together. Who knows why it didn't connect. 
But that restaurant, the location was great. It was in River North, and that became what later became Big Bowl and Wildfire. Uh, it closed down, split into two restaurants, uh, and both went on to be gigantic successes. So uh, I think, I guess, when you when you know that you have something great or a great location and you can – the best thing is that you're living in it every day. So when you see a restaurant that's not working or not working to its potential um, – or sometimes they just run a course. They've been open for 15 or 20 years, and it's and it's time to reimagine it. We had a, a Asian restaurant that was, you know, a, certainly a successful restaurant in imagination, open for 17 years in Ben Pao, and that became RPM Italian. We knew it was a great block. Uh, we knew that it was underperforming, and and now it, you know, is one of the busiest restaurants in in the city. So um, we're we're definitely not afraid to reinvest in ourselves and we uh, do view ourselves as long-term players and it's wonderful if you don't have to change something but mm-hmm. you know like we have Shaw's that's been open th- for 35 years 33 years and mm-hmm. RJ Grunt which is still going after 47 but sometimes things do come to an end after 17 or 18 years and and we're not uh, afraid to redo them and I think it's pretty cool how you you know take things you you know or at least think will work and replace those old concepts. So I know I mentioned Real Club because I went there the other day for lunch and it was gone. But oh, Beatrix fan. Oh, you didn't make her, yeah, Beatrix is coming there soon. And so it's exciting to know that, okay, well, it's still going to be something good that I know I can trust, mm-hmm. which is very cool. Thank you. So one of the ones I know I mentioned uh, just briefly was Seaside. I'm just kind of curious your overall take on this whole delivery-only concept thing. You know, we've seen a bunch that haven't worked out. But you guys, it seems like, have had pretty decent success with it. You know, um, I think we've learned a lot about delivery-only concepts. Um, And uh, I'm very close with Matt Maloney, who's the CEO of Grubhub, and I think that he would probably echo some of my sentiments a little bit. But um, delivery-only is sort of a funny world because our busiest delivery restaurants certainly are the ones that have brick-and-mortar recognition attached to it. RPM Italian, Il Portolino, Big Bowl, you know, places where they know they can go. But then I think about when I was growing up and I ordered a pizza, right, and I ordered from Jake's Pizza. I never walked in Jake's Pizza once in my entire life. I've never walked in. You never you order from, like, that Chinese place that, that right. delivered to your house, and you're like, I've never even seen the restaurant, but yet I get delivery from there. And so intuitively it seems like it shouldn't matter whether you've seen the restaurant, walked in it before, but it seems to be that, for us, restaurants that have brick-and-mortar locations certainly have a bigger lift than delivery-only concepts. Now, some of our delivery-only concepts are really just, you know, extensions of brick-and-mortar restaurants with different names, or they're produced in the same kitchen. So in that regard, for us, they can be really additive to what we're doing um, without it being uh, necessarily a home run by itself, if that makes sense. Definitely. So I kind of want to switch gears again a little bit um, and talk about the guest because one of the themes we keep hearing is that, you know, consumer preferences keep changing and we don't really know how to follow them. So have you seen any major shifts in your customers or consumer preferences in general over the last few years? I find that, like, that statement that we don't know what the guest wants, uh, like, feels like a little bit cynical or a little Mm -hmm. bit defeatist and – I'd say two things, that if you think about what is popular today on a very macro level, right, what are the hottest concepts today? Uh, Shake Shack, one of the hottest concepts in America. 
well, I don't think there's one new food item being served there, right? It's a burger and right. place and French fries. Mm-hmm. So they might be doing it a little bit differently or a little bit better than someone who's doing it before. But, you know, it's not – it didn't reinvent the wheel, right? They right. serve American cheese and special sauce on a bun. So I don't know if the guest is, like, so much different. Clearly, I mean, tastes come and go, but that's always the case. And I hate to say, like I was answering before, that some things are cyclical. I think, you know, uh, in the 50s you could find uh, lo mein restaurants, right, or chow mein restaurants. Or, right. Uh, and now, like, that's not what people think about Chinese food, right? So opinions of stuff have changed. But I don't believe that tastes overall have changed. I think there is definitely a push towards healthy. But, uh, I mean, the easiest thing that we say internally is that the answer is in the restaurants, right? Like, you know what your guest is eating. And if you're if you're paying attention to what a customer says in the restaurant, I don't think it's that elusive. It's it's really easy to see what moves and doesn't move. And if, on a macro level, I mean, the concepts that are growing, uh, for the most part, are not serving new things you know no one's inventing a food and serving it it's not we're not eating space food so so then knowing I, I, that, I find how, that i find the, the attitude that we don't know what people want to be a little cynical understandably and so you know knowing that and knowing you know it really is just a matter of you know paying attention to the guest and watching how are you guys specifically or are you you know driving traffic and winning over guests is it marketing or is it you know whole giant look at things? Well, yeah. I mean, there is an aspect of marketing that has gotten more digital and probably mm-hmm. more informed on who you're marketing to. But um, I still think that we need to market delicious things. At the end of the day, uh, no marketing for us can ever outrun uh, what happens in the store, that you can't outmarket a bad restaurant. You can't uh, – you can probably get people to try it, but that doesn't make that that issue stick. And um, – you know, you see it even with us, right? If we we could market the hell out of restaurants that we end up closing and then right. reopening is something else that becomes successful. Uh, if people identify with the food, with the place, it generally has, a, I think, a better – there's a better chance of connecting within the store than, than externally on a marketing side. Um, we definitely have a network of people that love Let Us Entertain You and come to see our restaurants, and that is – certainly helpful and I think gives us a competitive advantage. But at the end of the day, if we don't produce the product that they want in the store, it doesn't matter how much we market to them. It doesn't stick. Sure. So one of the things that I personally love about Lettuce is the really wide breadth of concepts and how you guys are continually launching new concepts. I mean, you said, what, more than a dozen in the next calendar year or so. Yeah, it doesn't how do you really... really new concepts, but right, right, right. new, some of them not. Sure. So how do you stay creative and inventive as a brand? Um, I guess we don't stop, right? We spend, <laughs> uh, before this phone call, uh, I'm on the phone with my dad, who we're talking about, you know, new floor plans. We're talking about actually reconcepting one of the restaurants we're running right now and how to relay out a floor plan and what that becomes. But at the end of the day, like, we have, we are built with a desire to do things new all the time. And it's probably at the detriment of growing stuff. Um, but our culture and our DNA thinks about new all the time. What are we doing next? Not just, you know, what are we doing next in existing concepts, but what are we doing next? Um, what are we working on? And we're, we're very 
conservative company, but we're also like, I think, saying, oh, I want to do a hot dog restaurant. I want to do a Thai restaurant. We have ideas for, for days of stuff that we're going to get to, you know, one of these days. Um, and if we don't get to it, it's okay, too. We're, I, 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 it's just built in our DNA of having fun and doing new things. That is probably creating is one of the most satisfying things that we can do. And with the idea of creating new things and thinking, you know, it can be anything from, you know, higher end to hot dog to something that's Asian and everything in between, how do you make sure that each one of the restaurants is recognizable as a lettuce concept? Um, so or I do you? everyone, we have a great culture within our company and um, that everyone is responsible, you know, the partners who are responsible for their individual restaurants are also responsible to lettuce as a whole. So certainly when we do things, we don't think about um, uh, does this fit into lettuce's culture, right? I mean, we're going to do a restaurant, and it has to fit within what we're doing, but we do have different demographics. Um, I'm trying to think, like, Disney World appeals to kids, but there are rides that appeal to adults, right? It doesn't necessarily um, – you can appeal to different people and have different things for different people. A meat eater and a vegetarian have different needs for food too, but they can all fit within the same culture of what we're doing. I don't know if that answers your question. Exactly. It does. It does. And I, you know, the one thing that I'm not even exactly sure how to ask about is all the different partners that you have, especially with a lot of the different chefs. How do you cultivate those partnerships and really make sure that they you know, move forward in feeding the company as well as the individual brand? Well, most of our partners, uh, you know, we have about 80 partners or so in the company, and almost all of them have come up through operations with it, with us, whether they're chefs or, um, or general managers who got promoted to partnership level and were given ownership. Um, so I guess a lot of that culture is internal. It doesn't come from the outside. That's the first thing. Um, and that everyone here does believe in the mission of lettuce, which is to take great care of, of our guests and to understand what our company missions are. I mean, that's how we kind of start with our training. But then we obviously have individual goals for each restaurant and individual goals for different partners. And along the way, partners' goals can shift for themselves personally. They can shift for the restaurants they're involved in. But um, I, I think our, our culture is 48 years old and is developed over that time and I think is really strong and kind of, you know, ties us together. And, and no one falls outside of the culture of lettuce. We spend a lot of time reinforcing that. And it's not for everyone. Uh, there's people that have been with us that say, this is not the culture for me, or it's like, I need to go off on my own because I need to have more freedom for this or whatever. And we've had a lot of really successful alumni have left us too. We're really proud of it. That's great. So which one of the concepts is your favorite? Um, I owe a lot to R.J. Grunts. Not only am I named after the restaurant, my parents met there. Um, so it's our first and it's still there and uh, is definitely like a place I grew up. I literally grew up, right? I grew up a few blocks away and spent a lot of time as a child and a toddler there and, and have a lot of fond memories of that place. Um, my brother and sister and I, our first restaurant was Hub 51 and uh, I'm still eating there five or six times a week and I think without Hub, uh, we never would have grown and done other restaurants as well. And I, I probably could eat at RPM Italian um, every day. I love Italian food. <laughs> I love 
food there, and I could sit in the bar and and really enjoy the place. I love the energy of the place. Um, Joe's has always been a special place for us for for events. Shaw's and the Oyster Bar. I, mean, I could name what I love about every restaurant that we have, but I mean those are some of the highlights for me. Well, that's exciting too to have passion about all the different restaurants that you run. Yeah. So I really, the last. Was often oh, go ahead. Like, I, I said something I don't get get to as often as I, I, I'd like to. You know, we have stuff in a lot of states, so I right. might only be in, in Minnesota one or two times a year. But um, I love walking in Mall of America and seeing the, the team at Twin City Grill, and they have a great GM there. And the, the partner who's up there, a guy named Ron Thompson, is a spectacular guy. And we actually started together uh, right when I was, I was out of college, and he was working uh, at a restaurant in Minnesota. We both lived in Minnesota together. So mm-hmm. I, I have fond memories of kind of everything that's happened, which is nice. So what's it like working in, you know, the family business, especially with not just your dad, but your brother and sister as well? Um, you know, you're working with people you can trust completely, which is amazing. Uh, it makes uh, definitely a blurry line between family and work at every given aspect of the day. Sure. So our lives are really intertwined, but it's so lucky to get to work with family. I mean, I get to... I think a lot of people are envious of that ability to be that close with your family, where your family gets to be your best friends and your coworkers. Um, it's so nice to have them. It, you know, certainly days get harder sometimes where um, it can be personal, or you're uh, you're trying to figure out how to how to make it all make sense. Or there's sometimes you just want uh, your dad to be your dad and not to be your boss. So, but it's the good outweighs the bad by far for me. Very cool. So really the last question I have is is more of a big picture question, mm-hmm. but what's the number one thing that really keeps you up at night? Um, I, I mean, what keeps me up at night? I mean, at some deep level, you always worry that a tragedy is going to happen in one of your restaurants. We have, very public places, you know, you think about a lot of how to protect them from a security standpoint, from a health standpoint, you know, you know, all those things can happen. And you, you say we have 8,500 employees, and not only do they need to be safe at work, and, um, yeah, I worry, I mean, that's really what I worry about is that something tragic happens to, to someone at one of our restaurants. That, that would be pretty devastating. Absolutely. Um, and I'd... Uh, or guests, for that matter, too, right, both sides. Um, I think that on the level of, you know, I don't have, like, business concerns on a daily basis. Yes, we're always thinking about what's next, what's working, what's not working, but that doesn't keep you up as night as much as um, something, you know, the, the worst of the worst, whatever you can imagine happening at one of the stores, like when you have very public places and, and something like that happening. That 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 certainly is a worry. Um and, uh, you know, we have a, a team of people that think about that. So Maybe let's end on a more upbeat note. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, no, no, no. It's, up that's exactly I mean, what I asked you. Yeah, that you, you asked me what, what am I most worried about. Yeah, I guess that's, the, that's definitely a gun violence. Yeah, huge I'm concern. most worried about that. Right. Um, what are you most excited about? Oh, man. We have a couple of projects that I'm really excited about. In the next couple of years, we're going to open, I think, at least at one new market, maybe two. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty excited about doing stuff uh, in some other states. Um, some of it's selfish. We, 
like I said, we're privately held, and it's not because we just want to do stuff wherever we do it. We're going to do some stuff in places that that I'm really excited about traveling to. Um, we have so much good food and so much talent in the company right now that that is exciting, as you can see. I, I, it's funny. I was with um, Kevin Brown, our CEO, yesterday, and, and an employee came up to us, and he said, have you seen how this employee has, like, really blossomed in the last, like, couple of years and uh, that this person has so much more confidence and is excited and is now dating? And, like, not that the person was a bad employer. It just was like this person had really made a lot of progress in their personal life he's like that's what we work for and it was like like super apparent that this person had really something great had happened to that person in the last couple of years um and their confidence was higher and everything about them and it i i you had recognized i'd recognized it but you didn't you know he verbalized it and that that's that's a pretty thing to be excited pretty cool thing to be excited about we have some great young partners in the company that are doing some really good good things culinarily, operationally, on the wine side. So it's pretty cool to have um, young, talented people that get everyone else excited. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Okay, Sarah, thank you very much for that interview and uh, for joining us on the podcast this week. No problem. So um, this year's uh, list is, I mean, the, the top 100 independents uh, is always one of the most fascinating rankings, I think, that's, that's out there because it looks at the, at, at the uh, largest independent restaurants. Is there anything that you can derive from this year's list? I think this year was a really interesting mix. Um, there's a few different trends that emerged, but one of the biggest things to really pop out is even though we hear sometimes that in terms of sales growth, independent operators are outpacing the sales growth of chains. They're still struggling too. It's not an easy market for anyone, whether it's looking at labor or costs or real estate or really any of the factors. There's there's a lot going on and it's really hard. That said, a lot of the restaurants that have done really well and continued to see sales growth and electively chosen to stay open because there have some been some that have said we're shutting our doors for various reasons, um, are really modernizing with today's consumer. And while that's not necessarily revamping a menu or changing for taste preferences, it's thinking about efficiency and how today's consumer approaches dining. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I, I think uh, if one of the interesting things is if you look at the, the list and you see these companies with the average check, and so like Tao Las Vegas, $93 average check. Joe's, oh, yeah. Joe's Stone Crab, $70 average check. You go to Tao Downtown in New York City, $98. But then you also have, you know, number three is Carmine's in Times Square. It's got a $34 average check, which... Uh, I mean, comparatively speaking, is 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 extremely small. You got the Boathouse in Orlando, which is forty three dollars, and uh, and then go down to Juniors in Times Square, which is which is uh, twenty dollars. And it and it's not like as if this inner is, the list is 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 all about these high dollar, uh, super fancy restaurants. A right. lot of them seem to cater to to a more um, regular clientele. Absolutely, and it's also a matter of size. Mm-hmm. So you look at, you know, Zenders of Frankenmuth in Michigan, which is on the list every year, and their average check is just under $17, but it's 
80,000 square feet. Yeah. It's huge. And it's always packed. And there's people waiting for tables at this gigantic place. And so it's, you know, it's, it's reaching that right balance of something that appeals at the right price to the right number of customers. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see any evidence on this list that, that independents are generating uh, stronger sales? There's definitely been sales growth. Um, a lot of restaurants are branching off into delivery. Even some mm-hmm. of our higher end ones are generating, at least at the moment, some incre- incremental sales from delivery, from their bar business. Um, a few that we've talked to have said, you know, the bar is really helping. You have uh, Swift and Sons in Chicago, which is an interesting steakhouse concept from the Boca Restaurant Group folks. Mm-hmm. And so they have their traditional steakhouse, but then the same entrance is shared with what they call cold storage. And it's a raw bar. It's much more casual, but it's the same building. Mm-hmm. And so they're managing to grow sales that way. Or you have, um, I'm in Chicago, so clearly those are the examples I know best. But Lettuce Entertain You often does kind of sub-concepts within their concepts to help grow mm-hmm. sales. So they have a concept called Oyster Bar in Lincoln Park, and they operate a delivery-only ghost restaurant out of the same kitchen called Seasides. And it's, I believe it's lobster rolls, fried chicken, and like one other thing, and that's mm-hmm. it. But because it's got that brand recognition of being a lettuce and our concept and out of you know the Oyster Bar kitchen, people know it, they accept it, and they order from it. So it's helped... Hmm. then be a little bit more innovative and they can move faster on some of that kind of stuff because, you know, as an independent, you don't really have the same kind of uh, chain mentality that you have to go through as many people. Right. Or but, board. Yeah. But what, but what, what you, what you mentioned though, seems to be, you know, similar to what maybe what is, is the benefits of the chains, but some of these, some of these concepts and some of these, these operating companies have such strong reputations within their local right. markets and in their local areas that it enables them to do different things to pull customers in the door based on their reputation. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not even just the reputation locally. The list includes, you know, some celebrity chefs. You've got, you know, Jean-Georges. Um, trying to remember. This is the first year that Guy Fieri's restaurant in uh, Guy's American Kitchen and Bar hasn't been on because it closed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's that it's that name recognition of, you know, Morimoto Asia in Orlando. You know, it's not necessarily everyone wants to go to this Asian restaurant. It's everyone wants to go and check out Morimoto from Iron Chef's um, restaurant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other uh, other uh, celebrity chef names on here? Um, in the so in the past we've had uh, places from Daniel Ballou mm-hmm. and we've had Emeril and Bouchon has been on or I'm sorry Bouchon has not been on I lied um, you know we've got Tom Colicchio who's had um, you know restaurants that have been close to the list they haven't necessarily made it on mm-hmm. but Jose Andres has bizarre meats on here um, a lot of the Vegas chefs are doing some interesting stuff that's landing them, if not on the list, you know, pretty close to the threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, Tau Las Vegas, uh, number one at uh, 43 million. Um, Tau Downtown at 34 million. Tau Uptown at 23.8 million. Uh, what are they doing? Uh, what are they doing to get so many restaurants on this on this list? Well, and then you also have to think about their other concepts too. So you have Lavo, um, which is number seven, I yep. believe, mm-hmm. and Vandal, which in New York City is number fourteen. You know, this group clearly knows how to get attention. Mm-hmm. They're they're relatively large spaces. They have high check averages. They've got a really big bar program. And they're they're big nightlife places as well. So it's right. not just the dinner crowd, it's nightlife as well. Mm-hmm. So they're 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 essentially building large uh high end entertainment complexes in which you go in and you you have a drink, you have a meal and and then you enjoy yourselves for the evening. Absolutely. And it goes back to reputation, too. You know, the Tao group has established themselves as a high-end place to be seen. So when they open, they almost instantly become celebrity hotspots, many of them. Mm -hmm. And that just continues to drive even more traffic. Right. Um, The other thing I see, it it seems to me that you see a lot of here is you see a lot of stake type concepts where... Oh, yeah. uh, And at at the end of the day, as as fancy or as, as... you know, we, we can talk about all these new uh, menu trends and menu items, but at the end of the day, uh, a lot of people are simply just thrilled to go out for, for a really nice, well-done uh, aged steak. Definitely. And it was interesting. This year, we actually promoted the packages, the resurgence of steak mm-hmm. houses, because we had even more on the list than we typically do. And there were a lot of newcomers to the list. And so a few of the steakhouse operators I talked to, both Swift and & Sons and um, one of the other steakhouses in Chicago, you know, I said, what's, what's the deal? There's, I mean, especially in Chicago, we're a meat city. We know mm-hmm. steak and how do you compete? And the reality is there's, there's room for more, especially as operators are steakhouse specifically. They're staying more casual um, you can wear jeans to a steakhouse nowadays and no one's going to judge. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said before, the bar scene is is pretty big. You can go in for, you know, a business lunch or you could go sit at the bar by yourself and have, you know, a steak and potato and martini for dinner. Mm-hmm. That's that's pretty traditional. Yeah, yeah. The bar scenes are pretty important for, for, for a lot of the chain, uh, the, a lot of the restaurants on the list. Um, Definitely, especially the wine programs. And a lot of them are, whether or not they have, you know, in-house wine experts, you know, the serving staff is trained in how to know and recommend wines um, because, you know, wines have a big old margin. So one of the things uh, that we've seen is, you know, this is idea and you've mentioned it early on is, is is you know independents are are providing a a a a a, a, t- a tougher bit of competition for for the chain world and and you know there's this rise of these strong independent concepts um, that are uh, are pulling pulling people on board and on balance I mean most of these like look you know. Um, you know, Boulevard in San Francisco, you know, BOA Steakhouse in, in West Hollywood, you know, or, or you go up to Tau, you know, the Tau concepts. None of them really compete with the, the, the chain world unless we're talking about like something like Ruth's Chris. Right. Um, 
but but still, I mean, especially some of the smaller, you know, smaller ones like Farmers, Fishers, Bakers in, in Washington, D.C. or or, you know, Timberline Steaks and Grill in Denver, Colorado, which is a $19 check average and mm-hmm. $13.4 million. You know, those are the type of concepts that are pulling people in. And, and it's just sort of a fascinating, you know, world we live in where people are are really kind of gravitating towards these 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 independent concepts. Absolutely. And as much as I hate to generalize, especially, you know, millennial trends, I try and avoid it. But I think the reality is the trend that people keep saying with millennials don't want a chain is mm-hmm. is true. Yeah. So even if you have somewhere that has maybe three or four units like a, a Joe's Seafood Prime and Stone Crab, mm-hmm. four units, excuse me, um, it's not seen as a chain. It's seen as, you know, this independent feel and it's you have to get it while you're, whether you're in Chicago or Vegas or DC, you know, you have to get it there because it's not something you can get down the street. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And that's the thing. Like, if, uh, you know, for, um, you know, uh, you know, chains, you know, I have to learn how to, to deal with this particular reality. And it's not just, you know, and it's not just sort of the higher end, you know, the, you know, the right. casual dining or the steak chains that are going to be competing with some of these companies on the list. But just in general, as you mentioned, that, you know, people really do like new things and they like right. to try different things. And, and uh, you know, whether it's millennials or anybody else, I mean, we have so many choices of restaurants right now and there's so many um, so many ways uh, that you can find a new restaurant, you know, you can look up at Google or you can look at, uh, you can look at Yelp ratings and, and, you know, you have, um, you know, I mean, you mentioned Guy Fieri and I, I, I'm, I'm actually a pretty big fan of his. And part of the reason why is, is, you, you know, you look at his, his program, you know, uh, diners, drive-ins and dives, or I can't even get those mm-hmm. things in order, but yeah. it's, it's really sort of put some attention on these out of the way independents that are doing really interesting food and, and, uh, um, you know, really, uh, kind of shed, a, a light on the fact that you have all of these restaurants that are not chain names that are, are really, really upping, stepping up their game on the food end. And if I'm a, if I'm a, 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 a chain concept, I definitely, you know, just continue to find ways to up my game. Well, and I think when we say up the game, mm-hmm. you know, so much of the focus needs to be around creating an experience because we really have seen this whole bifurcated trend where people either want super convenient or if they're dining in, they really want an experience that they can't get somewhere else Mm -hmm. that is, you know, they're treated like they've been there a million times and they're a loyal guest and they're getting the best service ever from the wait staff. You know, that's, that's what people are looking for. And I think the brands that manage to stay on this top 100 list, that's what they excel at is creating an experience that you can't get anywhere else. And I think that's where, um, potentially some of the chains, especially within the more legacy casual dining brands, are lagging behind. Yeah, and that's uh, that's exactly what people want uh, in um, uh, in 2018. They want to experience and they want to enjoy themselves. And and uh, if you do it right, you can get on on uh, on on this ranking. Thank you, Sarah, very much for uh, joining uh, joining me on the podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me.
A Deeper Dive is edited by Kimberly Colley. Artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. Contributors to this podcast include Sarah Rushworth, Peter Romeo, Heather Lally, and Pat Kobe. You can find this and other episodes on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash podcast. You can also find them on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host and podcast producer. Thank you for listening.